Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So, welcome to Simulcast. This is uh, one of a very special topic episode that I'm doing with Dr. Karen Dickinson, and we're going to be talking about interprofessional education, and in particular, interprofessional education in simulation uh, and with a particular focus on surgery. Now, I think most of us know in this world that uh, interprofessional education is a very attractive option. We like the idea, Uh, but it can be pretty hard to make happen, whether that's because of scheduling, different curricular requirements, and it seems like it's particularly hard at the undergraduate level. So today we're going to talk about what we even mean by interprofessional education, uh, why we might want to do it, how it looks in practice, and obviously think a little bit about some of the barriers and enablers. We're going to look at this through uh, Dr. Dickinson's story. And uh, so first of all, I'm going to introduce her, but first of all, say hello. How are you, Karen? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, I'm going to, I said hello first because I'll probably embarrass you by this excellent bio. So uh, let me just let the listeners in on who you are. Uh, So yeah, Karen's an assistant professor of surgery and the director of interprofessional education, simulation and clinical skills training at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. That's in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, She's also the surgical director of an American College of Surgeons accredited educational institute, uh, which is the uh, University of Arkansas Medical Surgeons. Center for Simulation Education. Uh, Now, she is a surgeon. She did her surgical training in both the UK and in the US, so hence you'll pick up on the accent, even though she's in Arkansas. Uh, And she did a general thoracic fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And uh, like a lot of our uh, folks who are now employed in the simulation community, she did a dedicated surgical simulation fellowship. Uh, in Houston as part of her training. And she tells us here her research interests include interprofessional simulation education, patient education, and virtual learning. And uh, if you're already keen, uh, you can look her up on Twitter at K underscore Dickinson MD. So with that in mind, uh, we might need to get a little bit of elaboration here, Karen. Tell us how does that bio uh, fit in with you getting into simulation and in particular getting interested in interprofessional education? Yeah, so it's a a bit of a complicated pathway that I took. Um, Nonetheless, I think I've got a lot of things from that through those experiences that perhaps were not the, you know, the original plan. But nonetheless, I met a lot of people, learned from a lot of people along the way. And I think that's given me a different kind of perception. Um, after the UK and US surgical training and during my simulation fellowship, I did the Masters of Education at the University of Houston. And I think that that was my first real exposure to interprofessional education and how it could benefit myself, but also um, the surgical simulation education that I was delivering. Um, and, you know, certainly in the cohort that I was in, there was not only other MD um, from geriatrics, pediatrics, but also nursing students and even K-12 teach, K-2 teachers, I'm sorry, um, which I think is really, um, really important to give that different perspective. And certainly when you're brainstorming together, often we had very similar challenges. And, you know, we would talk about what have you tried and what have you done? And I think the 
one of the disadvantages is that you often get very siloed within your profession. And there may be very similar educational initiatives and similar problems in other professions that you just haven't heard about because of those silos. And so breaking down those silos for me during my MED was really important. And that was something that I sought to continue in my practice. Um, And also I did a lot of collaborations Uh, collaborative projects during that master's and I think that strengthened our local surgical sim efforts. So that led me to where I am now at the UAMS uh, and in my role in the Office of Interprofessional Education but also Department of Surgery and College of Medicine and in a fairly unique position of having that surgical background and then the background in uh, simulation and master's of education And then now being very heavily involved in the undergraduate side of uh, interprofessional education, I think has helped me in the graduate side of developing a SIM IPE program, which really was, um, you know, needed developing locally. And that's what that's what I've kind of done in the last couple of years. Oh, well, this is a great story because I think it illustrates that lovely diversity that I think has been a hallmark of the simulation community over the years, uh, but also just this idea about examining topics in different contexts, leading you to develop good principles of pedagogy as opposed to just copying different formats. Uh, so it sounds to me like thinking about those contexts has made you really reflect on your own. And the, and the other thing that I'm so uh, pleased to hear about is that this kind of pleasantly flies in the face of this stereotype of surgeons just doing technical aspects of simulation, I think. Um, and I know that that's not true, but it is a stereotype. And I think this idea of thinking, no, 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 there's heaps of surgeons out there doing, um, you know, hardcore, pedagogically sound, uh, interprofessional education as well. So, all right, well, let's, let's dig on that one uh, about this interprofessional education. I think it's a term we throw around a lot. And yet I am aware that there's uh, a little bit more precision in that. And I've just gone on to the link that we will put in the show notes there from the uh, interprofessional education collaborative. Uh, .org, uh, where they've got a little definition on their website. Interprofessional education occurs when students from two or more professions learn about, from, and with each other to enable effective collaboration and improve health outcomes. Again, easy to say, but do you want to kind of flesh that out for us a little bit? Yeah, and I think it's really interesting what you said, because I also thought I was doing interprofessional education before you really delve into the definitions around it. And I think it it is this exposure to uh, individuals in different professions who have that knowledge about the formal definition of IPE and uh, SIM IPE as well. And, you know, as you said, it's it's two or, more, two or more professions learning from, with and about each other. And so I think that's different to what we think about as team training or um, you know, where we may say, oh, well, this is interprofessional education, but actually it's more team training because you don't have that diversity within the professions. And the main, one of the main benefits, because there's many, but uh, one uh, one of the main benefits is that you get that different um, perspective. All of the, you know, when we're in simulation, we talk about a, a lot about our learner's frame and what they bring to the experience and t- to the debriefing, and that helps their you know, us enable the debriefing and and guides their reflection. And I think what you get with interprofessional education is you get a lot of different frames from your learners. 
that are very complementary and enhance the learning for all. Um, and I think that's the real benefit that you get from that. Um, and, you know, I mean, that WHO definition was not that long, 2010, I think, is when the WHO defined that. So, you know, again, it's it's relatively new in, you know, education and simulation education to have those formal definitions and the IPEC um, uh the Interprofessional Educational Collaborative, which also uh, informs the policies and the competencies around this area. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things we see in the maturation of this area is this uh, development of competencies and actually describing what we mean about people having this interprofessional competency. I just wanted to, you know, really think about this distinction between team training and interprofessional education. So it seems to me these are sort of intersecting sets on Venn diagram. So yes, some team training may well be interprofessional education if it's developed with that intent and with that debriefing focus. Uh, but there might also be team training that's just very functionally focused and matching team to tasks and agnostic about professions, even if some multiple professions happen to be involved. And likewise, there might be interprofessional education that isn't really focused on what we might think of as team training, but is still nonetheless learning about from uh, and with each other so I think that's a nice distinction for us to make that again just underlines this need to be intentional about what we're doing and why we're doing it uh, something I was kind of interested in uh, is this interprofessional education collaborative it's got a very North American feel about it when I look at who's involved it seems mainly Canadians and Americans uh, but I presume this is work that's going on across the globe and it's just called different things in different places yeah, so I think, again, I mean, this is a, a when I say fairly, it's fairly new um, collaborative organisation. And actually, um, when we talk about the competencies, I think that it is useful that IPEC have defined those. Um, and, you know, in from my understanding, they're the most commonly used for, you know, hanging your learning objectives upon when you're creating these SIM IP events. Um, and these were created, the last iteration was 2016. And in fact, just I just saw that they've put the most recent iteration, 2023, on for public review just now. But there hasn't been that much change in the four key competencies, which are values and ethics, uh, teamwork, communication and roles and responsibilities. And, you know, when you speak also to teamwork uh, and team training simulation, I think the de the difference between the SIM IPE is that the, those four competencies are very core in your planning and your pre-brief and building your event and making sure that you're, you know, really educating all of your learners under those umbrellas, essentially, of the of the four competencies. Um, and, you know, they are intuitive, but when you think about it, actually you don't always write them into your scenarios. You know, for example, roles and responsibilities. I think, you know, prior to, you know, my current role, I think I was probably underutilizing that in the educational space. You know, how can a team really work together and understand each other if they don't understand everyone's roles and responsibilities? And, you know, in ACLS, it's, you know, so important with closed loop communication. Everyone in the room knows their roles and, you know, you've got a clear scribe and this person's doing CPR. But I don't know that that always translates into lots of other simulations and certainly, you know, in the past, I've definitely been less intentional about putting that in when crafting simulations. So, you know, it's not always um, appropriate, but when you are creating an IPE, 
simulation event, then it is important to have those four pillars. Yeah, and it makes me, uh, it reminds me of some work that uh, we've done in, uh, using relational coordination as a framework, Jody Hoffer-Gittel's work, uh, shared knowledge, um, shared uh, goals and mutual respect. And often the shared knowledge is shared knowledge of each other's roles. Uh, it's not just shared knowledge of the problem that we've got in front of us. Uh, it also reminds me of some work we've just been reading by Sarah Janssen's and others looking at exactly that issue in maternity teams and thinking about how professions and role allocation relates. All right, well, let's think about how this has played out in uh, the work that you've done, designing simulation activities, sessions, scenarios. Uh, and I know that you've had some experience in the undergraduate context, but also you've been thinking about how this plays out uh, for the healthcare practitioners who are working in teams and across professional boundaries. Uh, give us some examples. Tell us about them. So I have, I have loads of examples that I'm very excited about, but I think one that is particularly wonderful um, in the undergraduate that we do is our mock trial, uh, which is a medical malpractice event. Um, and we collaborated uh, with the Bowen, William H. Bowen School of Law in Arkansas, in Little Rock as well, um, as well as all of our colleges, College of Medicine, Nursing, uh, Public Health, Health Professions and Pharmacy. And all of the students get together and they, we've got a simulated plaintiff, defendant, lawyers, and then we also have our... Um, our students are jurors and so we go through the whole trial they have their jury deliberations and come back and give the verdict and you know the law students get the feedback and then also the health profession students and I feel like it's just so rich and there's so many aha moments like what we're all striving for and even you know which we didn't necessarily anticipate the law students gave such a lot of feedback like oh my goodness that really you know how they came across on the stand what was the preponderance of views in the jury about this testimony was really helpful to them to get that opinion as well because we were very much thinking of it from the health profession side you know um in that sort of lens around malpractice but the first time that we did it it was very you know that was that was such a it was a kind of an aha moment for us as well so I think being an IP simulation educator I think you learn from mm. all of these other professions as well during during those events so that is really fun and I remember the article about that you know we did talk about this on simulcast yes yes <laughs> <laughs> and I'll put I the link too. to that because we we really enjoyed that and I think uh, obviously, across healthcare professions jumps to mind when you talk about IPE, but this is actually saying, well, actually, there's more professions than just the healthcare ones that are very yeah. relevant to our practice. So, yeah, we really enjoyed uh, when Ben and I spoke about that. I remember uh, we, we loved that. All right. So that, but that's more for more undergraduate, undergraduate learners. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and again, really um, taking some big leaps in understanding there. Um, and I think I have observed that often people do quite well at the undergraduate level because even though scheduling is hard, you know, the students are there to be scheduled for learning. Absolutely. We don't have this competing priority of how on earth are we going to get people together in a workplace. So tell me what sort of things have you been uh, exploring in terms of the uh, health practitioners themselves? Yeah, so I think I think that speaks to um, a lot of the barriers in delivering um, sim IPE to those um, professions in clinical practice, because you've got the balance between not disrupting clinical services but also delivering that education. 
Um, and I think the logistics of getting your educators there and all of your um, learners can be really tricky and also demoralizing when you're starting. So I think one of one of the modules in my uh, Masters of Education was on diffusion of innovation theory. And so when I was thinking about doing these um, and kind of growing our SIMIP program at UAMS, I, I thought back to that and basically what it is, is a, is a curve, um, a kind of normally distributed curve and under which you have a gradation of the enthusiasm, I guess, of your surrounding community for the uh, innovation. Going from innovators, you know, who have proposed said innovation to early adopters, early majority, late majority and laggards. So obviously, you know, I wanted to target the early adopters and I, I've just kind of thought of them as simulation champions at our institution. And so the strong simulation champions we have are within the uh, Department of Emergency Medicine, the College of Nursing, obviously, and the um, uh, Department of Anesthesia as well. And so that's what... I did is I sat down with all these individuals who are also really excited about simulation and that's what we built. We built something together to try and um, galvanize people, demonstrate that it worked um, and to get people excited about it. So what we started with is um, we have a great um, relationship with our MEMS, our local uh, EMTs um, in Little Rock, and they have a great model, a trauma FX model, which has pulsatile blood flow that you can put tourniquets on and and you know um whatnot is very it's very good and so we created a simulation involving mem students so emt students nursing students um emergency medicine residents and general surgery residents and we were because of the buy-in the strong buy-in from all those departments we were able to actually get you know time protected in the schedule that wasn't our usual protected time um, and we ran it from the car park where we had the ambulances and the models, uh, the mannequins on the floor. And uh, our EMT students, you know, did their basic scoop and run and treating them, obviously uh, providing initial care and management. Then we wheeled them into the simulation center where we had our trauma room set up. Um, and in that situation, we had our two um, general surgery residents, a senior and a junior um, an emergency medicine resident and also nursing student and nurses as well. So we had a mix um, and um, some of the EMTs were also there in a helping us, uh, you know, with logistics and kind of making sure everything is pumping roll. Um, and it was really great. What we also did is we switched the general surgery resident, the senior general surgery resident and the EM resident in their roles so they could get an appreciation of, of the other perspective um, and then we were, uh, you know, we were careful about the debrief um, to, you know, when you when you get a mix of people with different uh, from different professions, I think you can run into issues sociologically in terms of hierarchy within your learners and even between learners and faculty, because the, the people who are running were myself and Dr. Margalik, who's a surgeon. So, you know, again, you have that potential hierarchical issue. And so. We were careful to do everything that we could to not only in our brief um, say that we are going to work towards a psychologically safe environment, but actually role model that. Um, and I think the great relationship between all the faculty members was 
uh, really important in in demonstrate in uh, giving the learners that psychological safety. I think because they saw that within the faculty, and I think that was part of having early adopters because that interest and that enthusiasm was genuine. Um, and so I think that really helped. All right. So there's just I've just been taking copious notes here because there's so many interesting things in what you've just said. So let's just jump in a bit. Uh, so one of the things was uh, you obviously are working on this at a few levels. You're getting people enthusiastic from the grassroots, but you're also going to people at that what seemed like that sort of mid-level leadership who've got direct contacts, but they've also got their senior enough to have some influence over how people get rostered and to get them to attend. And then you've obviously had to design a scenario that kind of fits well enough with people's work challenges. Uh, you've got senior and junior, which is interesting because that obviously is a whole other um, dynamic, not just across professions, but also hierarchy, as you mentioned. Uh, something I want to come back to, which is how you do the debrief. But I think another really important thing I want to say here is, uh, or what you're describing here is the faculty absolutely have to role model this and set the example. And if you, you just walk in as the surgeon and just tell everyone what they should have done, this is not really going to be a brilliant interprofessional moment. Uh, so tell me a little more. How did you actually uh, decide to run your debriefs with all of those realities in mind and also just how do you get the conversation going so that people do learn with about and from each other yeah so we we spoke about um ipe and kind of gave a, a brief rundown of the competencies um because i think also you know a lot of people are not necessarily exposed to that so and we gave we use a flipped classroom approach to give uh, that information, but also to give the uh, tool that we use, which is a TTCA 24, which is a trauma team communication assessment tool that's been validated. So that um, everyone who was in the learner role had a, you know, a clear understanding of what we were focusing on within uh, the team um, performance, essentially. And then we also use that tool to guide our um, debriefing. But what we also had is that we had our MEM staff there, as well as the surgical team. Um, and we also had our EM faculty there as well. So we were providing, and we also run, we co-facilitated the debrief so that there was uh, different perspectives and everyone had a voice in terms of facilitation. And so that's challenging because that requires a lot of front end prep to make sure that everyone knows what we're giving the learners. Everyone knows what we would like to highlight. Um, and then everyone is also, you don't know exactly how the scenario is going to go. So some of it is a bit, you know, unpredictable because certain points that you would draw out, um, uh, you know, are just dependent on what happens on the day. Uh, but we prep for it as much as we could. Um, and I think having that, uh, breadth of facilitators there as well um, and the preparation of the learners um, helped us get some really rich uh, conversations going. Yeah, and, and this is not to be underestimated the challenge of doing that because you can have all these wonderful people in a room but getting them to work together as a team to manage a conversation is super difficult. So well done. And there's a couple of other things that I just picked up on here. So uh, you're using uh, this scale or measure. So it's a sort of data informed conversation, but also it sounds like that 
scale was more being used as here's some guidelines around the kind of domains of what we're talking about and a coaching approach rather than we're going to score you one to 10 on these things. So um, it was a sort of stance of using that as a framework to help guide your conversations, which I think is very helpful and one of the good uses of these tools. And I've got some private reservations about some of the other uses of those tools, but uh, <clears throat> that's for another day. So, but it sounds like you managed to get a good group of people having a good conversation, uh, with some useful targets about what good looks like, uh, when it comes to interprofessional work. So I, I know what everyone's thinking already. It's going to go, Oh my God, what a lot of effort. And you've got to get people there. And it's all on the back of the enthusiastic people in each of these departments. Uh, they, people then start saying, well, what's the proof this works? Uh, no doubt you've had to think hard about what's your value proposition for the people who are either explicitly, oh, yeah, or explicitly funding this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's been a challenge for IPE all around the place, hasn't it? Yeah. So and I think, I think one of those things and something that's helped me um, with that is to align our efforts with leadership. And I think you mentioned that with, you know, there's leadership by, and so leadership from an institutional and departmental level. So I think when, as a simulation educator, it was helpful for me to go and find the strategic plan of UAMS, which is called Vision 2029. It was, it was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst, actually. But one of the, th well, a few of the things that they want to emphasize um, within education at UAMS with certain goals to achieve by 2029 are incorporating more active learning strategies, more into professional education and more into innovation. So that's wonderful because being aligned with that was so helpful. And then seeking, you know, uh, you can look for local um, institutional grants and what have you as well. Um, and there. There is um, good evidence that um, interprofessional teams can enhance um, quality of patient care, lower costs and uh, decrease patients' length of stay and reduce medical errors. And whilst there's a lot of literature supporting IPE for healthcare students, there's really not that much written at all in the literature um, linking uh, patient quality outcome measures to IPE and also to IPE SIM. And so actually IPEC, what they did in 2020, I believe, they've recruited a whole uh, bunch of, educa of educators who are interested in this and they're writing a scoping review. So I'm going to be really interested to see when that comes out because um, I think you know, it's one of those things in healthcare education is linking your educational uh, initiative to the Kirkpatrick's levels and trying to get to Kirkpatrick level four is obviously what everyone strives for. And, and when you when you talk to leadership, often that's what they want to see. So what is the actual benefit? What is the evidence? And because it is challenging to do that research or provide that evidence, um, then I think that this scoping review is going to be really helpful to kind of see what is out there because at the moment there isn't such a review and that's being worked on. And I think they decided to do that together because it's such a huge undertaking um, to yeah. achieve. Absolutely. And I think this is this is uh, a conundrum for most people as we're trying to demonstrate value of whatever simulation we're doing. We'd, As you say, we'd love to link it to patient outcomes. Uh, but it's not like everybody who prescribes beta blockers measures the outcomes and does a randomized control trial in their own patients. And by the same token, I don't know that all of us have to prove uh, that training together across professions works for every particular context. 
so I think to have an evidence base that then we can take some assumptions into our own work is probably quite useful. And I think that's much better than people filling out like at item forms of evaluation and proving that this is good because people liked it. So uh, so we will look forward to that because I think that's useful and, and I guess we've seen quite a lot of literature in that regard as you, as you indicate. All right, so there's two more things. I'm interested in where you're going from here, but before we do that, uh, just imagine you've got um, enthusiastic educators listening to this podcast and they're thinking, well, you know, I've done a bit of work in this area, but bumped up against a few of these barriers of uh, scheduling and engagement. Um, but I have seen these real uh, improvements when people do get together. Have you got any tips if you had to sort of say, what are your top two, three, four type things that advice that you would give others? Yeah. So I think, I think there, there is a lot of bar barriers and it can be daunting, but I think the top tips that I would give is, getting the early adopters, simulation champions, and trying to use diffusion of innovation theory. And something that was useful in that as well was a kind of, I dropped a catalyst in there as well to try and, you know, galvanize and spread the word. So um, the in 2021 and 2022, we ran a, a UAMS simulation educational research day. Um, and the first theme I made, modern into professional education, and then the second was about simulation and outcomes as we, we try and grow together as simulation educators and researchers. Um, and we had all of the, the simulation champions and invited anyone from any profession. We made sure we had uh, moderators from different professions as well as different colleges so that there was an interprofessional mix. So we're role modeling that. Um, so I think, you know, I guess tip one is diffu utilize diffusion of innovation theory. Don't be afraid to catalyze that. And then we invited some keynote speakers as well, nationally, um, Professor Nestel and Dr. Maxworthy, who also were providing uh, continued education for our healthcare professionals. And I think in that situation, then institutionally, I hope, that they would feel supported, that there's these resources, there's this collection of other people. And at that event, there was a lot of talking, you know, and that's what I wanted as well, people to come together and like, oh, okay, I see you're doing this, what about this, and hopefully get some collaboration. So I think that would be tip one. Um, I think tip two um, is really to leverage um the leadership buy-in institutionally and departmentally, but also leverage your local common goals. So what are in your department's um, QI issues or what are the learning gaps in the department and try and create a simulation that's aligned to QI issues or learning gaps that are already prioritized within the departments. And that is, you're going to have to, you know, boots on the ground a bit, go around and meet people. And, but that's fine because the, developing those relationships grows your community. And I think that helps grow the program. So I think that's another way to, um, you know, when you think of Cotter's eight steps of change model to try and get, you know, you're building your coalition, um, and, and then you get your volunteer army. Um, and then get some short-term wins under your belt so that, you know, more people um, get on board. And then I think that if you've got an infrastructure there, hopefully it's less intimidating. Um, and then, um, you know, I guess tip three would be really just to, 
use it in an evidence-based way. So, I mean, you know, the the best thing is really to the Institute of Medicine to Irish Human Report, which is 23 years old now, golly. Um, but I think, you know, obviously that was called to Irish Human Building a, a Safer Health Care System, and that's what we all want. Um, and they recommended interprofessional education, interprofessional simulation education, I think is one of the, although I'm biased, I think that's the best type of IP. Um, so I think, you know, providing evidence and, and if that's aligned with your institutional strategic plan, then, you know, that's that's even better. Even better. Oh, my goodness. I, I feel like this is more than three tips, but I'm just going to reiterate them again, uh, which is great. Uh, so first thing, catalyze, you know, get the conversation going, get these uh, uh, triggers happening, inviting some uh, high-profile people, focus and align. I like that idea, really connecting to what are the uh, pain points for people. Uh, boots on the ground. I think that's a whole tip in itself. You're really just grinding your way through, finding out what matters to people, when they can attend, all that other kind of stuff. And then I think that other idea about being evidence-based. And I can see in our conversation over and over, we've come up with sort of change management, diffusion of innovation, the way ideas and agendas and uh, change happens in organizations. And I think attaching to those frameworks is really helpful. All right. Well, I think that's pretty great advice for anyone who might be listening. But but what about you, Karen? Where to from here, both for you and for uh, UAMS and the simulation program there? Um, so, well... I think the next steps for us as a simulation center, I would really love us to be able to get a fellow because I had a wonderful experience in my simulation fellowship. And I think, you know, I guess it sounds a bit cheesy, but I'd like to pay it forward. And I think the more that we do that, um, then the better for our local educational systems. But ultimately, obviously, what we're all here for is the better for the patient. Um, You know, the more and high quality education we can provide. So that's what we're looking at doing locally with the simulation centre. Now we've become an ACSAEI accredited centre then to grow um, and develop uh, a simulation fellowship and also get more involved in the the ACSAEI have a a consortia. And so we're looking to to get involved in collaborative projects because, again, I think those multi-centre institutional projects can achieve a lot more. Uh, than local ones can in some regards. I think local ones are important nonetheless because, you know, sometimes certain things are only going to work or be relevant to your particular learner group or or certain, you know, learning gaps. But other things I think are, are really important to be um, collaborative. Um, and for me, I guess, I'm, I'm working on my CHSEA at the moment. So that's something that I'm working toward. And really, I just, I just like to grow um, as a mentor as well, uh, as I take that next step into mentoring a fellow. I look forward to that. As you say, paying it forward. Well, this is great. Well, Simulcast listeners, we've had a treat talking to Karen Dickinson, uh, surgeon, simulation educator, simulation researcher, IP expert uh, from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in Little Rock. Uh, Karen, thanks so much. It's been a very wonderful insight into thinking about IPE and SIM. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Simulcast listeners, this is Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. Simulcast. 